At this time, uh, we are going to be turning our attention to the Word. However, I want to give you a slight heads up about what's going to take place over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Generally, we preach from the beginning of a book uh, to the end of a book, and we just keep trucking along and making our way through. However, uh, we are going to take a slight detour for the next couple of Sundays. We We've kind of gotten a little bit off track because of the fact that there was a a random baby born in my house the other day, and so uh, now there's been a little bit of a complication with that. So what we're going to be doing is we're just going to be preaching today and on Friday and on next Sunday about the particular time in the life of Christ that we call Passion Week. So we, we are going to set aside some focus for that And those sermons will look maybe slightly different than what we are used to in some ways as well, even in terms of the structure of them. But I just wanted to let you know, we're not leaving 1 Timothy behind. We will come back to that, and we'll finish it up there in May before we go back to Isaiah for the summer. So with that all in mind, let's now turn our attention to the Lord. Let's ask His blessing, and we'll pray. Father God, we just ask that today... Lord, as we come to your word, there's going to be a lot of information in this sermon. There's a lot of detail. There's a lot of scripture. There's a lot of Old Testament, and there's a lot of movement through the Bible. But God, I pray that every single step we take through the scripture today, our heart and our focus would be on your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that today, as we come to your word, we would be students of the scripture, that we would seek to learn, but never for the purpose of knowledge that puffs up, but so that we might know you more, so that we might understand you more, that we might love you more. God, I ask that this would be by no means a tradition that we observe, just to sit and listen to a nice homily or a story. Lord, I pray that this would not just be an occasion for us to gather together and even just be good thinkers for a while. I pray that we would worship you. Today we're going to consider people that worshiped you with their lips, but not with their hearts. And I pray, God, that would never be the case in this building. That even as we say, hallelujah for the cross, that we would believe it. That we would live it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 21. And while you are turning there, I want to share something that I learned recently, and that is that before 1947, did you know that Levittown was actually two towns? And uh, obviously, Levitt hadn't built all the houses yet, so it wasn't called Levittown quite yet. Does anybody know what those two towns were called? Island Trees was one. Does anyone know the other one? Jerusalem, that's correct. Who said that? Of course. Yes, Jerusalem. So we had these two towns become one. And does anybody know that not only did the Quakers found Jerusalem, they also founded Jericho and Bethpage just a couple of years apart from one another? And did you know that the actual distance from Bethpage to Jerusalem is the exact same distance from Bethpage in Israel to Jerusalem in Israel. So that might help you today as we consider our text this morning because Jesus is going to be making his way from Bethpage to Jerusalem. That's what we call Palm Sunday. 
But we're going to shake things up a little bit, and instead of just jumping right into Matthew 21, I want you to stay there, but we're actually going to be making our way there through the Old Testament. We are going to be considering some very important events from Old Testament Scripture, and the reason that we are going to do that is because it is impossible for you to actually understand the event that took place as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, unless you understand a few particular things about the Old Testament and watch the majestic hand of God at work in stringing together His will throughout the ages. And so today, that is our desire, that is our hope, that is our purpose. Scene one begins in Egypt. And just as a heads up, we're having seven scenes today. Scene one, we're in Egypt. Joseph is still the second in command of the most powerful nation on the earth, and his family has all moved there to survive the famine. Joseph and his brothers have been reconciled, but now their father, Jacob, he's nearing death. This man was 147 years old, and he brought together all of his sons, knowing that he was about to come to the end of his days. He brought them into the room to bless them or curse them for how they lived. And their blessings or curses were not just the hopes of an ancient man. These were prophetic declarations about what God was going to do through the family lines of each of these men. In particular, today we zoom in on the most famous of those blessings, the promise made about the line of Judah. Genesis chapter 49 verses 10 through 11 says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Now there's a ton of information in these short verses, but for now, I want you to simply notice a few quick things. First of all, notice that there is a promise of royalty represented by the scepter. That's what a scepter is. It just says, the guy who, who holds this, he's the one in charge. And at the time that this was stated... There was no king in Israel. In fact, at this time, there is no nation of Israel. Yet, even so, God promises that the royal lineage would always be through Judah. And according to this prophecy, when the king arrives, his mode of transportation is going to be on the colt of a donkey. But I want us to zoom in on one thing even closer. If you, like me, grew up often hearing the King James Version or the New King James Version of this passage, then you probably remember it this way, where it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. Does anybody recognize that? Until Shiloh come. There's actually a few old hymns that say that. Until Shiloh come. Why does it look so different? Well, the, the answer to that is the word Shiloh is not an English word. In fact, the word Shiloh is not even really a Hebrew word. 
It is the only occasion that this word ever shows up in the entire Old Testament. It's one that the translators came to when they were in 1611 writing that King James Version. They said, how are we supposed to translate this? We don't know what it means. So they did what's called transliteration, where they just took the sound from Hebrew and tried to make it look like English. And so when you look at it in English as Shiloh, you're just seeing what it looked like in Hebrew until Shiloh comes. So what does it mean? What is Shiloh? This is the only place in the Bible where we find it, and interestingly, as it's used here, it is not the title of a location, but the title of a person. And that is why many translations will say something like we read before, that it will remain there until he to whom it belongs comes. The point being made is that this scepter is going to be passed down from generation to generation, but there is going to come a day when that transference of passing this scepter from hand to hand will stop in the hands of a single owner, and it will never again be bequeathed to the next generation. And that exchange would only cease when the scepter is given into the hands of the one who takes that title of Shiloh, into the hands to the one to whom it truly belongs. Now we jump forward roughly 400 years to our second scene this morning. The people of Israel, they're still in Egypt, but now they've multiplied and they've become this massive community. And as you certainly know, they became a slave race for the Egyptians and they were eventually set free by the hand of God through the plagues. These plagues were manifestations of God's power as he systematically proved that the gods of Egypt were false and that they had no authority over either him or his people. However, by far the most devastating and by far the most horrific of the plagues was the last one that sometimes is referred to as the angel of death. What happened there? God promised that he was going to kill the firstborn of every single family. That if you were in the house that night, when you lay down in your bed, you would never rise again if you were that firstborn son. And this would happen to everyone except those who had done a few very specific things. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 through 7, we read this. These are the instructions for how you survive this death angel that's going to come. According to Moses or Exodus uh, chapter 12, 1 through 7, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb." Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of that blood and put it onto the door, uh, two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. Exodus chapter 12. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I would pay pretty close attention to somebody who had just done all of the plagues that Moses had performed. Now, of course, he wasn't the one producing them, but he had at least stated that they were coming. 
He was the one who was declaring beforehand exactly what would take place, and then they did. Now, I would listen to somebody like that who says, hey, by the way, if you don't do these things, you're going to die. Your oldest son is going to pass away in the night if you do not take heed to what I say right now. I would listen to him. Now, notice that the lamb was to be selected on a very particular day. It was the tenth day of Nisan, the first day of the month for them. And the lamb was then to dwell in the house with the family. He was to be observed. He was to be recognized. He was to be seen by them. It was to be an animal that had no flaw or blemish. It was to be an animal that was used as a substitute to spare them from the wrath. You want your firstborn to live? Take the lamb instead. By God's grace, many people placed the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their house and they were spared. And the people of Israel were then delivered from the bondage of slavery in Egypt and they were later brought into the promised land. However, the practice of celebrating the Passover was instituted not as a one-time event, but was something to be continually practiced to remind them how God delivered them from their time in bondage. And over time, there was a particular place that began growing those lambs that were to be raised for the slaughter, the little town of Bethlehem. And there arose a shepherd from Bethlehem whose name rose to prominence and eventually would take the throne as king. Of course, you know who that is, right? Who is it? His name is David. David grew up shepherding little lambs that were designed for the purpose of this sacrifice. And that's right, the scepter of Judah is still being passed. And it is being passed down to the line of David. And David eventually comes to the throne. That brings us to our third important scene. There's a, a time when David has ascended. It had been years of being chased down and mistreated by Saul, who was an inappropriate leader at many times, a false king in many ways. And finally, David comes and takes the throne. And at that point, David wants to build a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. And God declined the offer. No, 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 thank you, David. You're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see the covenant that God makes with David regarding the future of his royal line. He says, in part, in that text, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, we know that the scepter will only be in the hands of those who come from the physical line of David, according to this text. He alone has the right to rule the kingdom, and his reign alone will be the one that has no end. Now, I've often wondered how David felt about this promise. Like, I wonder how he understood it. Have you ever thought about that? Like, when, when David's kids are being born, and he realizes it's a son, did he wonder to himself, hey, hey is this Absalom? Is this the child that will be the forever king of God? Is this Absalom or is this Adonijah? Is this Solomon going to be the one that sits on the throne of God eternally? Is he the one to whom the scepter will go and never pass? Now, we don't need to get into detail, but the sons of David were mostly horrific, disgusting people. Their exploits include things like rape and incest and murder and insurrection and attempted patricide and much, much more. I mean, these people were awful. 
So our fourth scene takes place at David's bedside in his old age when it came time for him to go the way of all the earth. And he gave one final command as king. The last command of David we find in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 32 through 38. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon! You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king and said, Amen! May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord the King, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon, and then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. These guys were celebrating. Look, we've got a new king. We've got this new king. Now, I realize that was a long passage to read with a lot of detail, but there are a couple of important things to notice. First of all, notice the form of transportation. Solomon was not given a horse to ride. Instead, he was given a mule. Now, believe it or not, I am not a master of animal husbandry, so I'm going to have to rely on some of the smart guys right now regarding what they have to say. But in English, the word for mule has a very specific meaning. It's when you have the offspring of a male donkey and a female horse. And so mules tend to be more easily trained than donkeys and much more docile than horses, so they work out well as pack animals on the farm. The problem is that mules do not have the ability to reproduce. Due to the mix of chromosomes that result from the mixing of species, mules are unable to have offspring. Trust me, I'm going somewhere important with this. Hold on with me. So now we have a little bit of a problem. I'm going to need you to lock in here with me for a minute with this line of argumentation in order to get the point. But consider this. 800 years before David was king, Moses wrote about how the future kings of Israel should act all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17. There's not going to be a king for 800 years, but when they get there, here's what they should do. Here's how they should be. And here are some of the commandments we find there. It says, Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Deuteronomy chapter 17, 16 through 17. Now David took this command very seriously. So much so that in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we see that he captured an enemy army and he had the opportunity to gather to himself 1,700 horses, but he refused them. And instead, he did something called hamstringing them, which is where you basically cut certain muscles to make it impossible for them to be used in terms of war any longer. And then he only left 10 of them 
unmaimed so that they could be used by his military leaders for their chariots. He didn't even keep any of them for himself. And it seems that David very much listened to the law of God in regards to the animals that he kept. However, there is now another law that we need to consider that comes into play. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 19 says, You are to keep my statutes. You shall not crossbreed two different kinds of livestock. Do you see my problem here? It is odd that David would listen to God about the larger matter regarding amassing many horses and not listen to God's command about avoiding mixing animal species. Are you tracking with me? To own a mule is a blatant disregard and violation of God's command not to crossbreed animals. If you were talking about a modern-day, what we call mule, then it would be a violation. But here's where language can be very important. Some scholars suggest that the word mule here in this time is used for any donkey that was no longer able to reproduce. They suggest that because mules are always sterile, considering their chromosome patterns, that any kind of donkey that was placed into that category of no longer uh, producing offspring, they would be considered a mule in the Hebrew language. In particular, donkeys that were to be ridden by wealthy people were, for the sake of younger ears in the room, fixed, and they were not allowed to reproduce. That made them more docile, that made them more controllable and easier to train. And therefore, I lean into the camp that says that what Solomon was riding that day into Jerusalem from Gihon up that hill was actually a donkey. Now, even if I'm wrong about that, it really doesn't make that much of a difference, but I do think it's interesting, and the point stands that before moving forward, you need to notice where Solomon started this ride. He starts at Gihon. Does anybody know where that is? I had no idea until I began studying for this. Gihon is at the spring in the Kidron Valley, which was a little place that would eventually become a village, a little suburb of a suburb, as one person called it, a little tiny town where when the city would swell for big festivals, people would go and stay. It's kind of like if you go to another city, a kind of smaller city outside of New York, and they've got the outer loop, and then outside of the outer loop, they've got the cheap hotel, the Motel 6, where you stay when you, you just, you're just passing through. You just need to sleep for a quick four hours and then get back on the road where this was. It's the outer loop. It was a place that would eventually be called Bethpage. During the time of David, it was just called Gihon because that was the name of the spring that came forth. But eventually around that spring, they built a little town, and that's where Solomon began his journey. And in our text that we're going to look at later today, that's also where Jesus begins his journey. So imagine this scene with me. There's a stir around Jerusalem because there's anticipation that David is going to die. There's anticipation that there is going to be a regime change, and there's a confusion about who it is that's going to take the throne. Absalom is already dead. Adonijah has already claimed that he wants the throne, and now we're waiting to see who will actually be king. There was an open story. There, it wasn't a secret how evil Adonijah was. And so when this individual, Solomon, is put forward, the people are rejoicing, partly because of the rejection of Adonijah, and partly because they see this guy's the real deal. This is the kind of king we want. And so as they are riding up that hill to Jerusalem, the people rejoiced, and they sang, and they shouted, because they were anticipating the good rule of a new king. And in many regards, Solomon well, he lived up to the hype. He surpassed the people's wildest expectations in terms of how powerful he made the nation. 
in terms of how much he expanded their borders, in terms of how he made others rich. He put the people of Israel on the map by outmaneuvering and outpowering all of their enemies. He was a great king, but he was not a good king. He was not a righteous king. He was not God's eternal king. And eventually, he, the son of David, died. He was a son of David, but he was not the son of David. Remember what we read from Deuteronomy 17 regarding God's command for kings? There were three main rules that we read. One, don't amass many horses because I don't want you to have dealings with Egypt. Two, don't amass many wives because they're going to lead your heart away from God. And three, don't amass large amounts of silver and gold. Now, I probably don't have to tell you a whole lot about his silver and gold. His wealth is legendary. Even among people who don't know the scripture at all and would reject Christ in every way, they would still acknowledge that Solomon was one of the wealthiest people in all of human history. And I don't think I need to tell you of his collections of wives and concubines because that is a notoriously famous passage about him as well. This man was disgusting. But perhaps you don't know about Solomon in regards to not following in his father's footsteps with horses. Oh no, instead we read of him in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 26. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. A stall of horses would hold anywhere from four to ten horses. And he had 40,000 stalls of horses. I have enough trouble feeding one dog. And this guy's got 40,000 stalls of horses. Where did they come from? And horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt and from all lands. Second Chronicles chapter 9, verse 28. This is a weird way to write things. And horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt and from all lands. Why not just say from everywhere? I mean, that's the, if you're saving ink, look, my wrist after writing for a while, I'm just done. Like, why would you add from Egypt if that's included in all places? It's placed there because it's an acknowledgement that Solomon was breaking God's explicit command, don't get horses from Egypt. He was not God's eternal king. And when he died and passed on the scepter, things just got worse. Under his son, Rehoboam, the kingdom broke in two. And then there were 18 more kings after that in the southern kingdom from the line of David. And every single last one of them failed in their own way. Some of them more spectacularly than others, but every one of them died and passed on the scepter to the next generation, not having fulfilled the promise. The people were still awaiting God's eternal king. And then the kingdom came to an abrupt end. The palace was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and the people of Israel were taken into captivity never again to have an earthly king to sit on a physical throne. But by the grace of God, the line of David was not broken, and the scepter was still being passed from generation to generation until Shiloh come, until that day when the rightful owner would actually appear and take his place as king. And after the people returned from exile and rebuilt the temple, God spoke through the prophet Zechariah to inform the people that the promise was still intact and that God had not forgotten his vow to send a king that would sit on the throne forever. So we now arrive at our fifth scene of the day. Zechariah tells the people what to look for when that king would finally come. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. And having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
According to this prophecy, the arrival of the king would be pronounced with shouting by the people of Jerusalem. They would be rejoicing. They would be celebrating. And this great king is not going to come in on a war horse. He's going to be carried on a little donkey. Not even a full-grown donkey, but the foal, the colt of a donkey. Imagine what that would look like. It would be almost comical having a full-grown man sitting on a half-grown donkey making his way up the road on a small beast of burden. He has no pretense. He's not showing off. He is lowly. He is humble. So now that I've officially, I think, completed what is likely the longest introduction in the history of Gateway Church, let's actually consider our text for this morning. I don't know if you're still there, but if you are, we're going to look at Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. This is our sixth scene of the day. Let's get our bearings here before we read. This story takes place at the beginning of Passover week. All of the people of Israel were commanded to travel to Jerusalem where they would worship the Lord with sacrifices and with feasts. And to be specific, this was the month of Nisan. To be even more specific, this is the 10th day of the month of Nisan. Or to be more specific, this is the day when you select the lamb that's going to be slaughtered that week. So all of these people were gathering around Jerusalem, making their way in from the countryside into the town, and along with them would be traveling all of the lambs that were being taken in to be sold that day. So even as they were going, people are probably looking around them, trying to spot the one that they would most desire to have as a pure and spotless sacrifice. And amongst them, you have one man riding in on a donkey, the true spotless lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world the true lamb who is going to be sacrificed as a substitute for people, the firstborn of God who would take place of the firstborn of man. But they did not know this was going on. According to John's account on this day, the people had heard Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and this caused them to to circle around Jesus in droves in in this great city that was in their their capital. They began flocking to Jesus as he makes his way because they know this man has done something that no one but Elijah and Elisha has ever accomplished by raising one from the dead. Now I want you to look with me with all this in mind. Consider Matthew's gospel. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and they did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, uh, put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, just like Solomon, Jesus made his way up that steep climb into Jerusalem, riding on the back of a beast of burden. And just like Solomon, the people shouted and rejoiced. And did you know that this is the only occasion in the entire Bible where anyone says Hosanna? Now, we have 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John recording this event. So we do find it in multiple books of the Bible, but it's only at this event that anyone ever declares the word Hosanna. It's a term of worship that was exclusively used regarding God's work in his Messiah. And here they are saying, Hosanna! And they're praising God because the eternal king has come. David's true son has arrived. Did you hear what they said of him? Hosanna to the son of David. The eternal king is now entering the city to take his place as king. And the scepter had finally arrived into the hands of the rightful owner and it would never be passed again. All four Gospels do record this event, and Luke includes that there was even some people who were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Why rebuke them? Why would... Why would the Pharisees say, you you can't say this, Jesus. You can't accept this adoration. You can't accept this kind of praise. Why would the Pharisees desire Jesus to rebuke them? Because they were acknowledging that he was the eternal, true king. And Jesus responded to them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, it's interesting because as he's saying this, he's almost into Jerusalem. And the stones that he's talking about would almost certainly be the stones of the building of the temple that would be right there on the mount in front of them. Interesting, that whole building is designed to point to Jesus. He has already said that he is the true temple. Let's rewind back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We already read, God said that my true son that's coming is going to build a house for me, but it wasn't a house made out of stone. It was Jesus himself. And as Jesus is making his way in, he said, look that building right there. If these people stop talking, that building would start screaming. There is nothing that could stop the acknowledgement that the Messiah, the true king, the one who has the scepter in hand, is now taking his place as ruler of all. And the walls themselves would testify. Now, if the people would become silent, that infrastructure could not help but ignite into impassioned songs of recognition of the glorious Christ. But I don't know if you noticed... I told you there's going to be seven scenes. We've only talked about six so far. The last one is particularly a sad part of the story. Luke tells us what happens directly after this event when Jesus came near to Jerusalem. He's still walking. There's still people following him. He's, still on the, or he's not walking. He's on the donkey. Everyone else is surrounding him. There's, they're still probably singing. They're still probably shouting. They're, they're still excited about what's going on. How did Jesus feel about this? How would you feel about that? Look, there's probably two responses that you would fall into. If you were on that donkey that day, you would either be feeling like a rock star. Yeah, that's exciting to hear the screams of the people and the way they adore you. Or you'd be so terrified because you know you are a fraud. And these people are looking to you to do something you could never accomplish. Maybe a mixture of both. But what was Jesus thinking? What was Jesus feeling at this very moment? Well, Luke gives us an account in Luke 19 of the events that we just read. And directly afterwards, before they even enter the city, it tells us in Luke 19, 41 through 44, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, there's the famous verse when Lazarus dies that Jesus wept. Did you know there's another? He comes into Jerusalem. He's nearing the city. And he, while everyone else is celebrating, he weeps over it, saying, 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. While the people were around Jesus, they were rejoicing, they were singing, they were laying down their palm branches and even their coats so that his donkey wouldn't have to touch the dirt. And his response to them was not to join in the celebration and revelry, but it was to weep. Why? Because these people who are declaring that, yes, he is the Messiah, he is the son of David, he is the king, they don't believe it. They say the right words, but they don't believe in their heart. They don't get it. They didn't understand. They fully expect that Jesus is going to go into that city, he's going to kick out the Romans, and he is going to set them free from bondage, like a modern-day Moses would remove the slavery yoke that was on their necks. But even while they sang, Jesus prophesied that the same Romans that they thought he was going to remove are going to encircle that city just about 40 years later and destroy it. So what's the point? Look, this is a simple sermon. There's a lot of details, there's a lot of information, there's a lot of connections through the Old Testament. The the point is simple, and it's this. Jesus did not come to accomplish your agenda. He came to be your king. Last summer, a woman called here at the church who was a part of a ministry locally on Long Island, and whenever anyone calls the church, I often just ask some of the same questions. What do you believe about the gospel? What is your understanding of salvation? Those kinds of things. And she wanted her group to come and sing here at the church, and I just had a few questions, and one of them was, what do you think it means to be saved? And her response to me was, well, it means that I add Jesus to my program. Let me be clear. Jesus has no interest in being added to your program. He will never be added to anyone's program. I didn't say it this way to her, but I will say to you again with all deliberate emphasis, Jesus did not come to fulfill your plans or your purposes. He came to be your king. Just next door to Levittown is Bethpage. Imagine if Jesus were to be physically present today. Just imagine that for the last three years, he's been making his way around Long Island, and he has been healing people. He has been doing miraculous things. When people are in the hospital with COVID, he would go in and he would bring them out with no sign. When people were blind, he would give them sight. When they had demons, he would cast them out. When lame people were around him, he would make them capable of walking again. Imagine if that was what was going on here on Long Island for the last three years. And imagine that there was... Even a man who died and was dead for four days and Jesus walked into this funeral home right over here and said, come forth. And the man gets up out of the coffin and walks out of the building unscathed. Imagine how people would respond to that. Imagine if this Jesus was in Bethpage this morning and started walking in this direction. Imagine the crowds that would surround that kind of person. Every single, I I don't know, I, I might be wrong, but I think everyone on Long Island would be there. I think it would be the largest gathering ever accumulated on this island. People would gather flocking around him. Why? Because he heals people. Because he does miracles. Maybe they just want the spectacle. Maybe they need a healing themselves. But a lot of people would be there just because they want what they want. And I wonder how long they would stay there. My guess is 
that it, be, it would begin as the largest gathering, but as soon as the miracle stopped, and as soon as they realized that Jesus might not agree with their specific political persuasions, or that Jesus didn't support their favorite cause, or that he didn't meet their expectations, that they would, at best, become an disinterested bystander and kind of be like that 40-year-old man who's snoo- or 90-year-old man who's kind of snoozing at the end of the Memorial Day parade down Hempstead Turnpike. If Jesus was walking through and, and he just didn't do those things for people, I think they would leave. I think they would go away. But that's not really my concern. This morning, my concern is what would happen if Jesus walked in the doors of this church. What, what would it be like if Jesus entered in through those doors right now? How would our hearts respond? Of course, we would celebrate, we would rejoice, but why would we be doing it? The people there rejoiced loudly. They, they sang louder than we did this morning. Their music was filling the air. It was, it was shaking the ground. The people were celebrating to such an extent that they were taking off their expensive coats and using them as a doormat for Jesus. Just a few days later, those same people were rejoicing, saying, crucify him. Put him on the cross. And what changed? In their hearts, nothing. Because they still just wanted what they wanted. They were not in it for Christ. They were in it for self. I want you to know that Jesus is present with us, just as he was present with them. He is still alive. He is ruling and reigning. He is king right now. And he holds the scepter presently. He does that in this room. The question is, does he do that in your heart? Or are you just interested in what he can give you? Are you like these people, the kind who love the idea of a Jesus that you've crafted for yourself, but you don't love the concept of a Jesus who actually rules over your life? Do you love Jesus because he's God's perfect son that was given as a sacrifice for sin? Do you love him because he first loved you? Do you love him because his ways are better than your own? Do you love him because he lived and died and rose for you? Do you love Jesus because he has lovingly added you to his family? Or are you just looking for another thing to make your life a little more comfortable? The people at the first Palm Sunday would have probably all said that they loved him. But by their actions, they denied that. They unified with the rest of the people and called for his crucifixion. They didn't get what they wanted from him, so they simply moved on. So we leave today's sermon with a question for you to ponder. Do you love Jesus for who he truly is, or do you simply say you love him for who you've made him out to be? I kind of lied to you unintentionally. I told you there's going to be seven scenes. What I really mean is there's seven historical scenes that I was going to share with you. There is one future. And that is there will be a time when Jesus comes back not riding on a donkey. He'll come in a different way than he did the first. He will come on a white horse. And he will come and he will bring his people home. And when Jesus arrives, the question that is asked in Scripture is when he returns, will he find faith on the earth? Let's pray. God, I ask for every one of us in this room that we would not be self-deceived, that we would not be distracted by the things of this world, that we would not think that we are following Christ when really all we are following is our own agenda. Oh, Father God, I pray that you would give us the ability to see Jesus for who he really is, 
And that in every aspect of our life, we would submit to him, our king, our ruler, the son of David, who holds the scepter. I thank you, God, that that scepter will never be passed, that we will never have to worship or serve another. I thank you, God, that on lamb selection day, when everyone else picked a different lamb, you selected your firstborn to go in the place of us, to be our substitute. I thank you that Jesus was a better king than David, a better king than Solomon, one who did build your house and is continuing to do so as he promised. I thank you, God, that Zechariah was right and we should rejoice that the king is coming and even now that he is here. Father God, I pray that today would be a time when our hearts are filled with rejoicing but not like these people. That our hearts would be filled with worship. Worship in spirit and in truth. Thank you, God, for every person in this room. May we submit our lives to Jesus and that every aspect, every corner of our heart would be dedicated fully to him, our righteous ruler, the Lord of all. Hosanna. Amen.